Okay, everyone, I suggest we get started. Um, and a very, very warm welcome to you all to this talk in the 141st session of the Aristotelian Society. It's a great pleasure for me this evening to introduce Julia Borsheding, our speaker from Cambridge, although she's in fact speaking from southern Germany, where there have been some pretty dramatic storms we gather. So if anything should happen uh, over the next hour or so, that may well be the explanation if she disappears from view. Um, so Julia works on early modern philosophy, mainly on the interrelations between ethical, metaphysical and epistemological issues in work of the early modern period. She's currently working on a book on the metaphysics of emotion, focusing on early modern accounts of love. Um, and that is connected with the topic of this evening's talk, which is entitled, quote, I wish my speech were like a lodestone, unquote, Cavendish on love and self-love. So um, very warm welcome, Julia, and over to you. Hello. Um... Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I'm just going to take a minute to pull up my PowerPoint. Um, let's see. Okay, here we go. Can you all see it? Yes. So good. Okay. Brilliant. Um, yes, as he was mentioning, um, there are some very exciting thunderstorms out here. So if I suddenly disappear from you, you all know this is where I've gone. <laughs> that was my electricity. Um, but let's very much hope that does not happen. Um, and instead, uh, I'll be able to tell you something about Margaret Cavendish tonight. Um, so let me just start with an observation. And that's the observation that from a 21st century perspective, love can seem certainly very much divorced from moral and especially from metaphysical concerns. So if we look at current philosophical investigations into love's nature, um, usually people conceive of love as a fairly narrow phenomenon, subjective, interpersonal, and they give accounts of it as a specific mental state or an attitude a person takes to another that can be cast in terms of her appraisals or judgments or beliefs and desires. But for many early modern philosophers, things still look very, very different. Um, love was still as much a metaphysical concept as it was an emotion. It was shaped by both Stoic and Platonist notions of love and sympathy that had been revived in the Renaissance, and it played a part in accounting for phenomena as varied as individuation, causation, or the mind-body union. So the power of love on early modern accounts is far more than a mere metaphor. Love could really unify and move particles of matter as much as it could hold together individuals. At the same time, however, this period also experienced a transition, namely one from what I'll call a broad cosmological or metaphysical conception of love to a much more internalized subjective one. And um, I explore both of these themes, so both the metaphysical dimension of love and this transition uh, in more detail in a larger book project, which examines various early modern debates on love. And, and this is basically a little part of it. Um, so for now, in this paper, um, I'm going to focus on how this transition manifests in the philosophy of Margaret Cavendish. And so I think that when we look at Cavendish's conception of sympathetic love, 
we find both a strong line of continuity, but we also find an intriguing shift. So on the one hand, this idea of a universal sympathetic love still pervades her metaphysics. But at the same time, she no longer conceives of this sympathetic love as a stable cosmic force. Rather, sympathy now manifests as the free passions and desires of material beings. And this naturalization, or what I'll call naturalization, in turn has powerful effects. Love's harmony is no longer a stable one, especially within the realm of human sociability, where excessive self-love often derails the natural balance. Uh, so rather than as a transcendent cosmic force, sympathetic love in Cavendish, this emerges as something of a regulative idea, which attains its full reality only in fiction. Though, as I'll very briefly argue at the end, it can still have powerful effects this way. So in this first section, I'll start us off by showing how a traditional conception of sympathetic love is still very present in Cavendish's universe and explains various types of interaction, such as individuation and also individuation. Okay. So on what I will call cosmological conception of love, by which I mean roughly the conception of sympathetic love that the early modern period inherited from Renaissance Platonism, love was far more than a mere feeling. Rather, it was often couched in terms of a universal relationship of sympathy, understood as a mutual love that waves through and unites parts of the universe. And love between individuals in turn was then conceived of as an instance of such a sympathetic movement. As Giuseppe Gervino poignantly summarizes this, the common image of the world that underwrites traditional conceptions of sympathetic love is one in which love and sympathy, quote, and the quote that I have off the handout, um, okay, um, okay. So as Jabino poignantly summarizes this, the common image of the world that underwrites traditional conceptions of sympathetic love is one, quote, in which love and sympathy is still understood as intimately related principles on a cold bond. It evokes a sympathetically coherent and unified cosmos in which the affinity of force of attraction between the parts and the whole is experienced as love. And so importantly, this view of the world doesn't conceive of love or sympathy as mere subjective emotional responses. Rather, it thinks of it as an objective feature of the creative world, stably grounded in a divine cause. All things are unified and animated, the Cambridge Platonist Henry Moore, for instance, explains by, quote, that magic sympathy that is seated in the unity of the spirit of the world and the continuity of the subtle matter dispersed throughout. Similarly, the medical scholar John Baptista van Helmond argues that God's vitality permeates the created universe and endows all natural beings with activity and perception, which in turn results in what he calls common attraction among them. And finally and prominently, Leibniz's pre-established harmony, according to which all substances mirror each other in perfect coordination, equally seems to bear both the marks of universal sympathy and a divinely established order. So Margaret Cavendish's materialism certainly paints a different picture of nature than do the 17th century Platonists, Van Helmen, Moore, Leibniz, or the Renaissance thinkers that preceded them, who all conceived of nature as suffused by divine principle. But as I now go on to show, 
Cavendish, throughout her work, pursues a vitalist account of nature in which sympathetic love does continue to play a crucial role. All things in the world, she writes in her philosophical and physical opinions, have an operative power, which operation is made by sympathetical motions and antipathetical motions in several figures. Like her Renaissance predecessors, for whom sympathetic resonance between the human soul and instruments like the aptly named Viola d'Amore served as one of the central images of universal sympathy, Cavendish highlights the effects of music on the passions of the listener as a central case of sympathetic love. The notes in music, she explains, sympathize with passions and with the several thoughts and move the mind to tender pity and compassion and a charitable love from whence proceeds a listening ear, a helping hand, a serious countenance, a sad eye. An important idea at play here, equally echoing tradition, is that the sympathetic relation between mind and music is grounded in a similarity between them. Music, Cavendish explains, has a sympathy to the mind's rational motions because the rational spirits move a number and measure as musical instruments do. And due to this basic similarity, musical patterns and figures can move the mind to imitate the movements of the music so that its passions become their expression. But as for many Renaissance thinkers before her, music is merely one manifestation of the dynamics of sympathy as it unfolds throughout the cosmos. And in Cavendish's cosmos, sympathetic love turns out to be ubiquitous indeed. Perhaps most visibly, there's sympathy and affinity between minds. A good translation, Cavendish for instance explains, is a translation where there's sympathy between the genius of the author and the translators. When another person returns our deep affection, they give Cavendish rights rise to a union likeness or conformableness of actions, appetites, and passions proceeding from an internal sympathetical love. If romantic, such sympathetical conjunction, as she calls it, between living beings may in turn result in the production of a new being after their own likeness, either in nature or shape or both. And perhaps Cavendish speculates even worlds may be matched by a sympathetical conjunction to produce other worlds as other creatures do. For we do find the planets by a sympathetical conjunction to produce other creatures as the sun and the earth. However, not only does sympathetic love ground connections between individuals, it also has a much deeper metaphysical dimension for it helps account for the existence of an order in nature that transcends the mere pushing and colliding of inert matter. An argument that Cavendish repeats in many of her writings is what I'll call her argument from order. Even though nature is thoroughly material for Cavendish, it must still be, she argues, self-knowing, self-living and perceptive. Otherwise, it would run into confusion. So nature for Cavendish is matter in motion. And these motions are from marvelous intricacy, complexity and infinite variety that neither the coarse motions of the mechanist that matter nor the Cambridge Platonist classic natures can account for. The former, the mechanists, simply fail to render the complexity of natural processes intelligible, and the latter, the Platonists, posit mysterious immaterial entities where there's no need for them. In answer to Moore's contention, for instance, that blind matter alone could not have hit upon the intricate order of nature without some further direction of an immaterial spirit of nature, Cavendish argues that it is rather matter sympathies and antipathies that direct its motion. 
I answer, she writes, the wisdom of nature or infinite matter did order its own actions so as to form those her parts into such an exact and beautiful figure as such a tree or such a flower, such a fruit and the like. And some of her parts are pleased and delighted with other parts, but some of her parts are afraid or have an aversion to other parts. And hence is like and dislike or sympathy and antipathy, hate and love according as nature, which is infinite self-moving matter pleases to move. So throughout her works, Cavendish invokes sympathetic love to account for the behavior of matter. While antipathies lead to dissonances in natural movements and figures, mutual sympathy brings about orderly and coordinated motions of matter. Sympathetic love regulates natural processes, such as magnetic attraction or the cycle of water, which Cavendish conceives of motions generated by the attraction of the sun. Diseases are said to be caused by the sympathetic imitation of parts of the bodies matter with the pathogen. Within individuals, she identifies what she calls a sympathetic agreement between rational passions and sensitive appetites, which she writes, so resemble each other as they would puzzle the most wise philosopher to distinguish them. Further, sympathy functions as a principle of individuation and conjunction, both among individuals as well as among their parts. So as Susan James points out, Cavendish holds that mechanist that matter theory is incapable of explaining individuation. Matter devoid of internal activity and intentional states that is moved merely by external imposition, she argues, could never form truly unified individuals. Cavendish vitalist materialism therefore paints a very different picture. Matter, she contends, is individuated into unified beings by mutual desire or love that is constituted by and results in further internal motions of the material parts involved. When one material being or part of matter performs and imitates another's patterns of motion, a sympathetic conjunction is created between the two. In this way, parts of nature which sympathize in their motions thus join together as one body. Just as regular human societies are bound by love, therefore, so are the parts of a human being or indeed any individual creature. So here's a nice quote that illustrates this. So she writes, in every regular human society, there's a passionate love amongst the associated parts like fellow students of one college, of fellow servants in one house or brethren in one family or subjects in one nation or communicants in one church. So the self-moving parts of a human creature being associated love one another and therefore do endeavor to keep their society from dissolving. So any part of matter, Cavendish holds, has both an innate love for itself and a passionate love for other parts. And it is this passionate love that sympathetically unites parts of matter into one creature. Creatures, he explains, associations of material parts that join by consent and whose mutual love preserves their association. And the result then of such an association is an inseparable commixture of rational, sensitive and inanimate matter which enters into, quote, agreeable combinations and connections in all productions. So this continued sympathetic cooperation of associated parts of matter within a unified organism explains both the development of that organism as well as its conception, during which Cavendish writes, corporal motions attract and invite by sympathy other parts to help form it. Sympathetic love also explains an individual's persistence over time. As long as an individual's society moves, quote, so sympathetically 
as to commit fewer no disorders or irregularities, its unity continues. Yet once its motions become irregular, be it due to internal disharmonies or external intrusions, decay sets in. Now, within a given creature, the motions of animated, sensitive, and rational matter have particularly strong sympathy, conjunction, or affection, since they're fundamentally alike and, as she puts it, like fellow laborers assist one another. And their sympathetic love explains both the close union between our minds and bodies, as well as the mind-body interaction. Mind and body, she thinks, affect each other by aligning and imitating their motions, such that when sensitive and rational matter move sympathetically, then the body is healthy and the mind in peace. And while the rational emotions usually direct the sensitive ones, they also sometimes move with the sensitive ones out of love for them, just as Cavendish points out, a parent may sometimes go along with the wishes of their child out of affection for them. The sympathetic connection between rational and sensitive matter, Cavendish observes, even entails that we could infer someone's mental states from the physical ones, if only we had sufficient knowledge. Besides, she writes, who knows but that the very thoughts of men may be known by the temper of their body. For could men come but to learn the several motions of the body, which ingenious observations may come to do, they may easily come to learn the motions of the mind and so come to know the thoughts, which thoughts are the several figures therein, which figures must commonly move sympathetically with the motions of the body. All passions and desires, Cavendish holds, are individuated via sympathies and antipathies among the motions of rational and sensitive matter. Rational passions can occasion sensitive appetites by compelling the sensitive matter to imitate its motions, and appetites can occasion passions. Their moving in tandem, in turn, can elicit a whole range of complex emotions. Sensitive pain can elicit rational grief, sensitive pleasure, rational delight. In the philosophical and physical opinions, Cavendish asks us to think of the mind spirits as, quote, little spherical bodies of quicksilver, several ways placing themselves in several figures, sometimes moving in measure and in order, and sometimes out of order. Imagine, she writes, this quicksilver to be the mind, and the several postures made by motion, the passions and affections. Love is when they move in equal number and even measure, but all the motion which they make is according to those figures with which they sympathize and agree. Besides, their motion figures are like the sound of music, Though the notes differ, the courts agree to make a harmony. But not only does Cavendish appeal to sympathy to explain the association and interaction of parts within and between creatures. She also evokes it as an ordering principle that accounts for the individuation and persistence of species and kinds. Like a shepherd, she puts it, sympathy shapes and controls the motions of material parts so that the order of species, elements, and kinds is maintained. Even when a natural being of a certain kind dissolves, is newly created, or otherwise assumes a new figure, sympathy guarantees that these transformations always proceed in accordance with principles fixed by sympathetic relations. Sympathetic love, in short, still plays a key role in grounding the order of Cavendish's well-ordered universe. Her conception of such love, moreover, still bears strong resemblance to received views. These reverberate both in her central examples, the sympathetic effects of music, the attraction of magnet, as well as in her frequent appeals to similarity along many dimensions, degrees of matter, shapes, motions, 
as establishing or strengthening sympathetic relations. But sympathy's ubiquity doesn't only highlight Cavendish's closeness to tradition, it also, I think, brings out a key tenet of revitalist materialism, namely that fundamentally, we as humans, even though our capacities may differ, are but one and a part of nature made of the same matter and subject to the very same forces and laws. So as human societies and individuals are bound by sympathetic love, so are the parts of any material being. And equally, the disharmonies that occur within a body or mind are often no different from conflicts and disharmonies within society at large. All are just grounded in the antipathies of their individual parts, be they parts of bodily matter, conflicting beliefs, or distinct human beings. Yet while Cavendish's conception of sympathetic love is still deeply connected to tradition, her particular brand of vitalism also changes it in at least two important ways, which I would now like to consider in more detail. So first, I think that in Cavendish, sympathy becomes fully naturalized. And second, it seems to me that it's no longer conceived of as a stable force, but rather as the voluntary self-motion of individuals. So I'll now consider these in more detail. Cavendish's naturalization of sympathetic love is certainly well contextualized as part of a wider effort in 17th century natural philosophy to show that phenomena of what's then sometimes called natural magic could in fact be fitted within a secularized framework and need not imply any occult forces. But while the position aligns well with this broader movement, it's certainly a very radical one. Some, Cavendish explains in letter 15 of the Philosophical Letters, may ascribe sympathies and antipathies to the influence of the stars, others to an unknown spirit, and yet others to the instinct of nature or to hidden properties of powers. But in fact, she continues, they are nothing else but plain ordinary passions and appetites. These passions and appetites in turn are, like everything else in Cavendish's cosmos, no more than motions of matter. Sympathy, Cavendish contends, is no more than dilating agreeable motions of matter in one part of a creature. When these sympathetic motions agree with those of another creature apart, they result in love, the sympathetic motion or dance of spirits that binds the parts of nature together. Antipathy, in turn, is grounded in contracting motions which are disagreeable and produce contrary effects, as dislike, hate, and aversion in some part of creature. Sympathetic relations, Cavendish points out, are as manifold as they are ubiquitous, for, she writes, quote, there are many desires, passions, and appetites which draw or entice to something or other. Yet at the same time, they are just nothing beyond these passions and appetites. Sympathy, she argues, is nothing else but natural passions and appetites as love, desire, fancy, which lead to comfort and unity. Love as opposed to sympathetic love or sympathy, is at times also more narrowly defined as proceeding from rational matter only. There is sympathy, she writes, of sensitive spirits and rational spirits. The one proceeds from the body, the other from the mind or soul. The one is fondness, the other is love. So the main difference between love and fondness is basically scope. While fondness is finite, 
lasting no longer than the senses are filled. Love, quote, dwells in the soul and is never satisfied, but the more it receives, the more it desires, so that the sympathy is the infinite of love eternity. So love, in a more narrow sense, is still a form of sympathy, um, that it's, 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 a, it's a movement of the rational spirits. But even the effects for the strongest love, which brings about a union likeness or conformableness in the actions, appetites, and passions, are at bottom merely further motions like the ones that constituted in the first place. For this kind of sympathy, she argues, works no other effects but a conforming of the actions of one party to the actions of the other, as by way of imitation, proceeding from an internal sympathetical love and desire to please. For sympathy does not produce an effect really different from itself. And this is a conclusion that's reiterated at great length in the philosophical letters. Sympathetic relations, Cavendish insists, are both caused and constituted by natural passions and appetites. And these natural passions in turn are the causes and constituents of all sympathetic phenomena. So the lodestone, the lodestone draws iron and the needle turns towards the north due to, quote, love and desire for association, just like the flower turns towards the sun from which it receives benefit. Anything, Cavendish concludes, that has freedom and liberty of motion will turn towards those places or creatures where he expects relief. And this last passage in turn illustrates a second crucial change in Cavendish's conception of sympathetic love. Sympathetic motion, she asserts, are associative or imitative motions that are initiated through the often voluntary self-motions of the material parts involved. For Cavendish, therefore, sympathy is no longer a cosmic force or hidden power that things are simply dealt with. Rather, it's something that's up to, as it were, the individual parts of nature. It's no longer a mere fact of nature, but something that is enacted and chosen by individuals. As we already saw, Cavendish opposes a mechanist or atomist account of matter that reduces it, as she puts it, to a dull, dead, and senseless heap of dust blown about by the wind. For such a heap, she argues, could never produce such infinite effects, such rare compositions, such various figures, such several kinds, such constant continuance of each kind, such exact rules such undissolvable laws, such fixed decrees, such orders, such method, such life, such sense, such faculties, such reason, such knowledge, such power. The whole complexity of nature could not be explained in this way. Matter, Cavendish asserts, all matter requires knowledge and a capacity for intentional action in order to be able to behave in the complex coordinated manner that we observe in so many natural processes. And as our little investigation into sympathy's metaphysical roles has already revealed, the ordered self-motion of matter not only entails that matter must be ubiquitously rational, as commentators have often pointed out, it must also be ubiquitously sensing and feeling. So parts of matter must be capable of perceiving the motions of other parts, of forming a desire to imitate or otherwise harmonize with these motions, and of then moving themselves accordingly. Nature, in short, is full of life and teeming with a multitude of dynamic figures brought about by the self-directed motions, which are the very nature of matter and the immediate cause of all natural effects. In addition, Cavendish rejects 
any explanation of causal interaction via transfer of motion, since, she argues, any such account fails to recognize the essential materiality of motion. Matter just is self-motion, and thus motion can neither be transferred upon impact, as Descartes would have it, nor can it be a mere accident of a body, as Hobbes would argue. Accordingly, rather than directly transferring motion to each other, two parts of matter causally interact if one compels the other to move in accordance with the figures of its own motions, thus giving occasion to move in a certain way. When sensitive matter, for instance, reacts to another body's matter, it's not simply pushed around by it. Rather, it imitates its pattern of motion and moves itself in a similar way. Cavendish often uses the metaphor of a dance to describe this. When two people dance, one leads while the other imitates the pattern of movement. And this is exactly what sensitive matter does when it is affected by other matter and causation or perception. Cavendish tenet that all matter is intrinsically self-moving and the occasionalist account of causation that follows in its wake does imply a fundamental freedom of nature. If man, she writes, who is but a single part of nature, has given him by God the power and a free will of moving himself, why should not God give it to nature? So all of nature is free in this way. She does, however, still distinguish between two modes of interaction between material parts. So on the one hand, parts of nature may forcefully compel other parts of nature to act in certain ways by, quote, forcing these overpowered parts to alter their own natural motions into the motions of the victorious party. But some material part may also direct another harmoniously by consent, she puts it, so that the parts harmoniously conjoin and meet in their figures. Some grow by consent of parts into the wheel of fire that is the sun, Others fly upwards, but then by consent fall down back as rain, and yet others unite by consent into the harmonious dance that constitutes the health and life of an organism. The forced movement of parts, Cavendish concludes, is action by compulsion. The harmonious movement, on the other hand, is action by sympathy. Sympathetic interaction, therefore, always involves cooperation or harmonization of agent and patient. Commenting on the relationship between the rational and sensitive parts of the creature, Cavendish explains that, quote, the command of the rational and the obedience of the sensitive is rather an agreement than a constraint. Similarly, all creatures are produced or composed by the agreement and consent of particular parts. And when a body becomes aware of another body, it may perceive it as agreeable and consequently love and desire it, or perceive it as disagreeable and withdraw. In all cases, the causal interactions that underwrite sympathetic relations are free, active motions that are brought about by internal desires. They're not passive transformations imposed from the outside. For Cavendish, in short, sympathetic love is not passive, it's active. It entails the will to be moved and therefore at the same time necessarily brings with it the freedom not to be moved in such or such a fashion. It's not a mechanical relation, but rather involves freedom of choice on the part of the attractive material parts, which move themselves according to their needs and desires. So we just saw that for Cavendish, sympathetic love is a voluntary and entirely naturalized phenomenon. It involves nothing but the passions and appetites of material parts, 
which lead them to adjust their self motions to the motions of other parts if they so desire. And I think this conception clearly moves Cavendish beyond the occult forces, sympathies, opponents, saws, operative and traditional conceptions. However, it also reveals a more destabilized and divided cosmos where the loving relations that bind nature's parts suddenly seem much more fragile, especially as we shall see when it comes to the realm of human sociability. So we already saw that Cavendish like Hobbes sees a tight relationship between the workings of the natural and the moral world. Both contain unity and division and Cavendish explains necessarily so. For quote, if there were not contrary or rather I may say different effects proceeding from the only cause which is the only matter there could not possibly be any or at least so much variety in nature as human sense and reason perceives there is. So the result of division is variety and none would exist without. And I think Cavendish's thesis of the freedom of sympathy actually goes a long way towards explaining this variety. So there's both, there's both discord and division as well as concord and composition among the parts of nature brought about by the free motions of material beings who sometimes behave in a regular sympathetic and sometimes in an irregular antipathetic manner. For instance, their sensitive and rational emotions do oftentimes cross and oppose each other. Forshee writes, although several parts are united in one body, yet they are not always bound to agree in one action, nor can it be otherwise. For where there are no disagreement between them, there would be no irregularities, and consequently no pain or sickness, nor no dissolution of any natural figure. In addition, she points out that the epistemic limitations of created beings may lead to error in judgment which then in turn may lead them to move disharmoniously. For while nature is infinite and naturally wise, individual parts of particular creatures may still commit errors and mistakes. And so among these infinite parts of nature, there's both antipathy and sympathy. Yet at the same time, and that's a very crucial point, there's also constant rebalancing between the two which leads to, as she puts it, a conformity in the whole nature of infinite matter. Nature's fundamental actions, she argues, are so poised that irregular actions are as natural as regular. Indeed, she marvels, quote, it seems to be nature's great art to make all things subject to war and yet live in peace as not to make an utter destruction. Moreover, what may appear as an instance of disturbance to us may actually be an instance of harmony. So a contagious disease such as the plague, while believed by, as Cavendish thinks, some experimental philosophers to be, quote, a body of little flies-like atoms which go out of one body into another, is indeed caused, he argues, by a sympathetic imitation of material parts. So that, she writes, the motions of some parts which are sound do imitate the motions of those that are infected. And by this means, the plague becomes contagious and spreading. So it's actually a sympathetic interaction that brings about the spreading of a plague or virus. So, but given our epistemic limitations, some motions of nature, importantly, what we call sickness, pain, and death may seem like true imbalances to us. But in fact, they're nothing but manifestations of the poised variety of natural motions. Yet while nature fundamentally retains its balance of sympathy and antipathy, 
The same doesn't hold true of the world of human sociability. Though men did fall, Cavendish poignantly states in the philosophical letters, nature never did. While the unified and vitally connected universe presented by Cavendish's natural philosophy seems to startly contrast with a Hobson mechanist picture of randomly colliding atoms, her depiction of human society, in fact, carries strong Hobbesian undertones. In World's Olia, for instance, she writes, of the society of men and women comes many great inconveniences as deformations of women's honors and begets great jealousies from fathers, brothers, and husbands. Those jealousies beget quarrels and murders and at the best discontent. So if you look at Cavendish's sociable letters, um, you get a particularly lively picture uh, of Cavendish's bleak view of human sociability. So, these letters depict a world of choleric ladies who sympathize neither with other women nor with each other, and a discordant concert of scholars whose discourse was their music, but who soon became so violent and loud that they would have fought if they had had another wounding weapon than their tongues. A malignant contagion of gossiping that is more dangerous and widespread than all malignant diseases, and women who are so self-loving that in order to live peacefully, most need to be strangers to their own sex. Friendships are tainted by jealousy. Men contrive how to advance in title, fortune, and power, while women plot and scheme in their support, always ready to side into factions. A play within Cavendish's play, The Convent of Pleasure, also exposes the harsh realities of marriage, with negligent husbands lying drinking all day in an alehouse and gambling away their estates, while their wives are home caring for too many children and suffering in labor. But not only social rivalries, but also depictions of outright war and the equally destructive incursions of mankind into nature are a frequent theme in Cavendish writings. The former undoubtedly shaped by her own devastating experiences of the English Civil Wars. The poem, The Earth's Complaint, describes the motion of the planets around the sun as a sweet music and kind love, only to then turn to humanity's torment and exploitation of the earth. She also cautions that such disorders may be far more easily created than repaired. It takes, she emphasizes, far, far longer for society to unite than to divide, and the ruins of war are not so suddenly repaired as made. While sympathies and antipathies in the national world do still keep their balance, in the social world, the latter seem to easily outnumber the former to grave consequence. Nature, she writes, being poised, there must of necessity be irregularities as well as regularities. But when there's a general irregularity, then the society falls to ruin. A substantial divide therefore emerges. While there's disorder in the natural world, since all its parts are free to sympathize or antipathize, nature nonetheless remains fundamentally balanced. The same, however, does not hold true of the realm of human sociability. So the question now is, what explains this divergence? Um, why is it different for us than it is for the rest of nature? And the answer, perhaps surprisingly, brings us back to love, or more precisely, to self-love. So in the grounds of natural philosophy, Cavendish distinguishes between passionate love on the one hand and self-love on the other. Passionate love is love between the parts within a creature or between creatures, while self-love is the love each creature, and in turn, each of its parts, has for itself. 
In its basic and natural form, self-love is nothing other than an innate desire to preserve itself, which is, she says, both just and natural. It's the most fundamental kind of love, and it's the ground from which all our other passions do arise. So a quote for this, she writes, self-love is the ground from which brings all endeavors in industry, noble qualities, honorable actions, friendships, charity, and piety, and is the cause of all passions, affections, vices, and virtues, for we do nothing or think not of anything but has a reference to ourselves in one kind or another. So all we do is motivated at bottom by love and the harmonious motions of love led by reason, which she points out lies as much in the heart as in the head, are both the foundation of nature's house as well as the source of the moral virtues. With respect to virtue, Cavendish again invokes the metaphor of music. The virtues can tune their passions like musical instruments such that every note causes delight in the hearer. Crucially, self-love is thus what motivates material beings to enter into sympathetic or antipathetic relations with other parts. All motions of sympathy and antipathy, Cavendish argues, proceed from self-preservation and all things turn with self-ends, for certainly everything has self-love, even hard stones. In its pure and natural form, Self-love is therefore actually central to the balancing of the passions that constitute all sympathetic and antipathetic relations in nature. However, self-love can also be corrupted and then gives rise to violent, limitless and destructive passions and appetites. Like the sunbeams in one point as with a glass wherewith it sets all on fire, she writes, so self-love infires the mind, which makes it subtle and active and sometimes raging, violent and mad. As it is the first that sees it on us, so it is the last that parts from us. And the reason should be the judge of the mind, its self-love is the tyrant which makes the state of the mind unhappy. For it is so partially covetous that it desires more than all and is contented with nothing, which makes it many times grow furious even to the ruin of its own monarchy. However, Cavendish is also adamant to emphasize that the destructive effects of excessive self-love are artificial, not natural, and that they only occur in the human realm. So one of the most violent products of excessive self-love is hate. It promotes vainglory and it divides where balanced love strives towards unity. However, it's not an intrinsic part of nature whose chief law, she says, is love. Rather, it's an accident from love. And the same Cavendish emphasizes is true of all other excessive passions and desires. Moderated passions are natural, whereas violent, limitless passions and appetites are artificial, shaped and manufactured by social influences and constraints. Similarly, she draws a contrast between natural disorders and the artificial wars caused by us. All natural war, she explains, quote, is caused either by a sympathetical or an antipathetical motion. And these motions proceed merely from self-preservation, since matter's motion sculpt itself into shape and figures, and these strive to maintain themselves. The human war experienced by Cavendish, in contrast, is described as an unnatural war that, quote, came like a whirlwind which fell down houses, where some in the wars were crushed to death. And this includes Cavendish brothers, Charles and Thomas. A final manifestation of human self-love to which Cavendish describes an equally destructive force is the excessive human desire for recognition and fame. 
Our desire for fame, she argues, is a desire for self-preservation that extends beyond death. We do not know whether we truly have immortal souls, but we do know that our natural mind and body are subject to decay. Yet to die for fame, she writes, is to live longer in the memory of other men than he knows he shall live in the life of his own body. It's worth noting, though, that Cavendish does not seem to regard our desire for fame as intrinsically vicious. Not only does she often express and comment on her own desire for fame, she also seems to have thought this desire to be a basic feature of human psychology and one that can also motivate to virtuous actions that gain us recognition from our peers. However, and more often than not, excessive self-love transforms itself into a striving to be recognized at any cost into excessive ambition, which then leads to war and strife. It leads us to be selfishly concerned with our own fame and gains rather than with the welfare of the associations of which we are a part. And it leads us to view ourselves and our imagined immortality as rising above nature. We then think of ourselves as pity gods entitled to use the rest of creation for our own ends. Animals, Cavendish Radley points out, can also develop pride or ambition. Horses or dogs can strive to outrun each other, and a peacock can take pride in its feathers. However, they don't strive for fame that outlasts their life, nor do they develop distorted self-images that lead them to believe that they're a place above creation. While self-love, therefore, is both natural and necessary to produce the passions that move all the parts of nature, in the human realm, and can lead to excessive passions with the power to disrupt the world's natural balance of sympathies and antipathies. But why, we might now again want to ask of Cavendish, is this just true of us? Does she not claim that we are, as we saw earlier, like everything else, merely part of nature? And I'm afraid Cavendish's answer is not as clear cut as we might wish it to be. However, I think her text hints at an answer. Human self-love, she argues, is rendered unstable and inconstant through, quote, vain opinions, false imaginations, and unsound understandings. So the artificial conventions and pressures of human society, um, but also our corrupted and overly ambitious nature that has been in touch with them for too long. And so guided by excessive self-love, we thus, quote, ride in the ways of partiality on the horse of flattery to the judge of falsehood. Moreover, she points out, men strive for fame because they wish to be remembered. For, quote, those men that die in oblivion are beasts by nature. So this last theme, this false hubris of humans regarding the rest of nature is a very frequent theme in Cavanagh's writings. She extensively criticizes the presumptuous self-love of the experimental philosophers, which leads them to think that they can create new kinds and elements that transcend nature's order. Men's self-love, she argues, has filled him with that credulity of a powerful art that he thinks not only to learn nature's ways, but to know her means and abilities and become lord of nature to rule her and bring her under subjection. Cavendish poetry also often draws out men's foolish ambition which is frequently contrasted with the actual skill and wisdom of other animals. Cavendish's suggestion, this seems to be 
that excessive human self-love is sparked by an exaggerated awareness of our higher capacities, only to be set ablaze by the artificial conventions and self-images we develop to set ourselves apart from nature. Further, her discussion of self-love and its corruptibility also clearly resonate with the debate surrounding the concept that arose after the publication of Hobbes' Leviathan. So many of Hobbes' contemporaries saw him as breaking with the Aristotelian conception of self-love that we still find in Cavendish, according to which self-love can be both good or bad, can lead both to vice and to virtue. Um, Hobbes, by contrast, was very often seen as having divorced self-love from virtue by claiming that rational individuals in the state of nature only pursue passions that are self-directed. And vicious self-love thus becomes the only natural kind. And it seems to me that Cavendish's position offers an intriguing counterpoint to this Hobbesian view. So on the one hand, she does seem to follow Hobbes in taking a very bleak view of human self-love as often excessive in virtue. Yet on the other, her position ultimately emerges as an intriguing inversion of Hobbes' own. For while for Hobbes, the world of human sociability is the only way to master our self-love, for Cavendish, human sociability amplifies or sometimes even brings about its destabilizing effects. Um, so for Hobbes, we're rescued by human sociability, whereas for Cavendish, it mainly corrupts us. So in closing, I would briefly like to highlight a final interpretive question that Cavendish's contrast between the natural world and the realm of human sociability leaves us with. And I will do this very briefly. Um, so if anyone wants to follow up on this in Q&A, I'd be very happy to. I wish the character of virtue pronounces in one of Cavendish's plays, my speech were like a lodestone to draw the iron hearts of men to pity and compassion, to charity and devotion. But while the sympathetic force of a magnet attracts reliably in the natural world, which is free from excessive self-love, We've just seen that there is for Cavendish an important disanalogy between the natural and the social world. The natural realm, despite the freedom of its parts and the irregularities that fall in its way, retains its fundamental balance and the stable sympathetic relations which ground its order. The world of human sociability, on the other hand, is marked by excessive self-love and the disorders it gives rise to. Within the human realm, sympathetic love, this seems to become a regulative ideal rather than a cosmic fact, an ideal which is in fact very rarely attained. And in Cavendish's writings, this ideal emerges in its most tangible form under the heading of platonic love, through which, as she practically describes it, the souls of lovers mix as painters create shadows and mix in colors. The resulting unity of minds is a frequent motive in her plays, fictions, letters, which are meant to create such unity with the fictional, fictional correspondent, but also in the idealized depictions of her own marriage. Platonic love also crosses gendered lines. In Cavendish's Utopia, The Blazing World, the encounter between the Empress and the Duchess produces Cavendish rights. Such an intimate friendship between them that they became platonic lovers, although she points out they were both females. The Empress sold, Cavendish describes their encounter, 
embraced and kissed the Duchess souls with an immaterial kiss and shed immaterial tears that she was forced to part from her, finding her not a flattering parasite, but a true friend. This description of platonic love is entirely immaterial, undoubtedly elevates it above selfish bodily desires and passions driven by excessive self-love. But it also seems to thereby remove it from physical material reality, rendering it but a fiction of the mind, exemplified by nature in its harmonies, yet unattained and perhaps forever unattainable by humanity. And in the grounds of natural philosophy, Cavendish seems to indeed draw precisely that conclusion. One whole mind, she writes, cannot perceive another whole mind, by which observation we may perceive there are no platonic lovers in nature. In prima facie, this conclusion seems to sit well with a quite widespread reading of Cavendish, according to which her negative view of human sociability prompts her to turn inward almost solipsistically. Seth Lobis, for instance, has argued that, quote, Cavendish took refuge in a concept of sympathy between souls as a way of solving the problem of sympathy in society. Ultimately, Cavendish's development of moral idea of sympathy ends up not in altruism or benevolence, a key word of late 17th century and early 18th century moral philosophy, but in egoism, one might even say autism. So while this interpretation does perhaps not paint the picture we would like to have of Cavendish, in case we have some attachment to Cavendish, as I certainly do, there certainly is some textual evidence to recommend it. Um, she often juxtaposes her descriptions of the wars and strifes of the public world and her grief that mankind should be so ill-natured and cruel with praises of a retired life that is, quote, neither vexed with cares nor worldly desires where the mind lives in peace and its thoughts engage in conversations driven by sympathetical endeavors. She also bluntly declares that certainly a solitary life is the happiest. And in her fictions, her female protagonists often strive for a retired life free from, quote, the entanglements, confused clamors, and rumbling noise of the world. And in her writings, overall, imaginary worlds abound. Indeed, their construction itself is a frequent theme. And in them, characters often share the relations of perfect love and sympathy that she finds so lacking in the real world. However, in doing so, some of her interpreters argue, she herself lets these relations collapse into an excessive form of self-love, or as Catherine Gallagher puts it, into total self-referentiality. But while there is certainly a part of Cavendish that looks inward, perhaps yearning for love and sympathy lost, there also seems to be another. And this part, it seems to me, wants to pull the world towards her and desires to move it with her imagination, desiring her speech to have the power to attract and to move other minds to sympathetically imitate its figures, just as the lodestone attracts the compass's needle and leads it to face north. Cavendish's imaginary worlds, for instance, do seem to be more than mere escapes into fantasy. Rather, they're also, for instance, places where women can showcase their true talents in ways which the reality of Cavendish society precludes. In constructing them, Cavendish both demands their acknowledgement and puts into sharp and critical relief the oppressive social norms that mask them. In the blazing world, for instance, the Empress encounters numerous men of science who are all eager to engage in a sustained dialogue about their studies and who all profit from her expertise, 
And the real Cavendish, needless to say, had very much the opposite experience. Similarly, in Cavendish's play Bell and Campbell, a group of women follow their men into the battlefield. However, instead of staying out of the way, as they had been told to, they end up forming an army of their own, which, cleverly led by a female strategist, rescues the faltering husbands from defeat. So perhaps, and somewhat ironically, her own and often evoked desire for fame may serve as the clearest sign for Cavendish's outward-looking side, not as an illustration of an excessive self-love or as the desire to be recognized at any cost, which is a desire she herself very much criticizes, but rather as evidence of a desire to be heard as a writer and as a woman who not only imagines better worlds, but also would like others to share in them and ultimately to help make them a reality. Thank you. <laughs>